I teach a course at Wofford College uh, on regulation. And of course, regulation is much, much more than what we're talking about here with consumer product regulation. It's um, antitrust. Uh, it's um, uh, sort of economic regulation where we, you see the government trying to intervene to make the economy as a whole better. Um, if you've attended the other talks, several of the other talks this week talked about the uh, the barriers governments would face in, in actually accomplishing that. But one of the concerns that I run into quite often in talking with students and others about uh, regulation is um, uh, people say, well, if you didn't have regulation over consumer product quality and safety, then you'd have companies that were selling um, hazardous things to uh, to consumers, you'd have uh, you know rat poison in your medication. Uh, you'd have widespread fraud where people are selling um, something they claim is one thing, but it's actually something different. And uh, so they say, well, you know, we we have to have regulation. Uh, we have to have government uh, involvement in inspecting products, in mandating certain minimum standards, and and so forth. And it's a it's an understandable concern, um, most people have grown up in an environment where government is regulating consumer products and they have trouble imagining anything else. Uh, sort of like uh, our, our road system, which is socialized and government provides 99% of the roads in the United States. And uh, most people say, well, that's, of course, that's going to be a governmental function. They can't imagine any other way of doing things. Um, until they talk to Walter Block. Uh, so um, I'd like to start with a kind of a, um, a way of, of systematizing our understanding of regulation. There are three types. These come from uh, Murray Rothbard's Power and Market, which I believe you can find as uh, the, the latter portion of, his, of the very thick volume of Man, Economy, and State. Power and market deals with some of these kinds of, of questions of government intervention into the economy. So he's got three categories of intervention, autistic, binary, and triangular. Uh, autistic, it, that's not referring to a, um, uh, what you might think of the mental um, uh, problems that, that uh, you, you might see, but this is uh, referring to a a one-way intervention from an intervener or aggressor to a um, subject or a victim where the aggressor doesn't get anything in exchange except perhaps some sort of satisfaction from having committed this act. Uh, so homicide would fall into this category. Um, so uh, that's, that's an autistic intervention. And then there's binary intervention where uh, there's a forced transfer from the victim or subject of that intervention to the aggressor. Uh, robbery, uh, taxes, um, conscription, all of these things would fall into the category of binary intervention. What we'll focus on here is triangular intervention, the third category uh, where Rothbard says that uh, if, if the government or any other aggressor interferes with an arrangement between two other parties, 
that's triangular intervention. So if the government imposes a wage control, like a minimum wage law, that's a triangular intervention. If the government says, uh, you're not allowed to work for this company unless the company provides you with certain um, safety uh, guarantees or safety equipment or um, other, other uh, changes to working conditions, uh, product quality regulations would fall into this category as well. So you're not allowed to provide this product to the consumer unless it has certain characteristics. So um, again, a lot of people look at this and say, well, what would happen if you didn't have the government um, doing this? We'd all be um, uh, dying from uh, accidents caused by um, low quality or unsafe products. Um, and this is an old concern. It goes back well before this fellow here. This is Ralph Nader, uh, who wrote a book, came out in 1965, called Unsafe at Any Speed. Um, now, most of you wouldn't remember that. I was born after 1965 myself. I don't really remember uh, this, this book much. But it did focus on the safety problems of American-made cars, in particular the rear-engined Corvair, a compact car, got a lot of heat. Uh, Nader argued that it tended to roll too easily. Uh, years later, uh, after the book had already done its damage, independent tests of the Corvair showed that it didn't really behave any worse on the road than any other similar-sized vehicle, but by then the auto industry had this reputation of uh, sacrificing consumer lives uh, on the altar of profits. Now, um, the second item here that I have, the, the second bullet point, can a car be made too safe? Sounds like an odd question. And I've asked this of students over the years, now, can a car be made too safe? And they'll say, well, you can't have too much safety, right? I mean, that, how can you, how can you, that doesn't make any sense. Um, until, we, until we think about the fact that a car or any other product, safety comes at a cost. You have to give something else up in order to get it. And at some point, added safety will have a cost that is too great. And in the minds of the consumer, it would be too great. Now, if you've taken a business ethics course, you probably have run into the case of the Ford Pinto. This is sort of a classic in business ethics classes, as I understand it. And if you haven't talked about the Ford Pinto case, you've probably discussed something very similar. The Ford Pinto was a supremely ugly little car produced in the 1970s. Um, in my mind, most of the cars produced in the 1970s were pretty ugly. But um, in any case, uh, the Pinto was a compact. It was designed to be very cheap, affordable. Um, fuel efficient for the, for the time, and it, uh, the Ford produced hundreds of thousands or millions of these cars, and they sold quite well. And uh, they, um, a, 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 a several high-profile cases appeared in which the Ford Pinto was the Ford Pinto's designers were accused of having designed the car with a flaw that should have been corrected. And Ford was 
uh, sued for this, um, this design problem. The car, when struck from the rear, um, tended to have um, problems with the gas tank rupturing and the car would catch on fire. And there were several tragic accidents. One accident uh, in particular that I think triggered the, um, the court case for Ford involved three uh, young women who died on a highway in the Midwest when their car, they had stopped at, at night in the middle of the traffic lane and were struck from behind and uh, they were killed in this accident. Uh, so the business ethics classes will typically look at this and say, well, you know, this is, this is a clear-cut case where Ford did the wrong thing. Uh, Ford figured out in their design process that it would take $11 per Pinto to change the design in such a way that this would not happen as, as easily. Um, and they multiplied that by the number of Pintos they expected to produce. They said, well, this is going to cost $138 million because, of course, you've got to do this to all of them. You don't know which ones are going to be in an accident. They then compared this to the total liability they would face from wrongful death and injury litigation, which they estimated to be $50 million. Now, you can argue, and I, I'm so, somewhat sympathetic to this, that Ford made an error in their cost-benefit analysis here, that they, they underestimated the cost side of this. Um, but that's not really the focal point of most of the case studies that you'll see in classrooms discussing the Ford Pinto case. Instead, you'll see objections to the very fact that they even made that calculation. And that's part of the problem um, with, with that sort of um, uh, assessment, that you know, we, we have to make these kinds of trade-offs. It's inevitable. On the other side here, you see, um, I guess, a prepper's dream, right? This is uh, ready for the zombie apocalypse or something. <laughs> so uh, some sort of bulked-up armored truck. Um, with some kind of mount for a weapon on top. I, um, now, which which vehicle would you rather be in if you were going if you knew you were going to be in a vehicle accident? <laughs> yeah, the one on the right, correct. So why aren't we all driving those? I mean, th think about how secure you'd be. I mean, you could hit anything. <laughs> And you'd be fine, right? Unless you just drive it off into the Grand Canyon, you're going to be fine. Maybe it's even got a parachute or something. So if you drive it off, the parachute opens, you sort of gently float down to the... It, well, I mean, why don't we drive those? I mean, they're very, very, very safe. Your chances of being injured or killed in a car accident, or vehicle accident, I shouldn't say car, vehicle accident in one of those things would be minuscule. Why don't we drive those? You could buy something like that, I'm sure. Uh, if, and certainly, if, I mean, maybe minus the weaponry or something, but you, if, you, if people wanted vehicles of that sort, then I'm sure General Motors or Ford or somebody would be happy to build them for you. Why don't we, why don't we drive them? Trade-offs, okay. What, what do you have to give up if you drive the thing on the right? 
is, is probably going to get like two miles per gallon. It probably costs one and a half million dollars or something. It, it, to, to ensure this thing would be, would be costly. Uh, imagine trying to parallel park that thing. Um, it might be fun to drive, drive over things. Would not be fun to drive, okay. Well, I guess it depends on your point of view, right? It wouldn't corner very easily. So my point is there's a lot of trade-offs which most people are not willing to make. I drive a little economy car, um, and I'm fully aware that because it's a lightweight car, it probably weighs, I don't know, 3,000 pounds or something, not, I don't know, 30,000 pounds like that thing. Uh, it's lightweight, and it's not as safe as other cars I could have bought, but I didn't want to pay the higher price for a safer car. I didn't want to take the, the hit on fuel economy and so forth. These trade-offs are everywhere. We make them ourselves. Um, so if the government says you have to have more safety in a vehicle, what they're essentially telling you is you have to accept the costs of that, which you may not be willing to accept or may not want to accept. Uh, you might have to take a hit on fuel economy. You might have to take a hit on... Uh, on uh, uh, parking ease or towing capacity or various other things that you might want to have in a car, affordability. Um, so that's, that's part of the problem. And government regulation really cuts both ways. So we see vehicle regulation that changed largely after 1965 in Ralph Nader's book. Vehicle regulation changed to, to re require certain features on cars that were supposed to make them more crashworthy. At the same time, we get other regulations that push the other direction. One of those is the CAFE restriction, which we'll get to in, in a bit. Uh, uh, corporate average fuel economy regulation. Harold Winter um, points this out in one of, his, one of the chapters in his little book, uh, Trade-Offs. Uh, with regard to workplace safety, he says, suppose a risky job has a one in 10,000 higher death risk than a less risky job. So maybe you're a truck driver and you're driving a truck with a gasoline tank behind you instead of a um, uh, trailer filled with baby diapers or something. So you, you have a more risky job. How much would you have to be paid to accept, voluntarily accept that additional risk? Winter says, if you say $500 a year, and if 10,000 workers give that answer on average, then that means on average one worker out of that group of 10,000 is going to die because they accepted that riskier job. Uh, so the value that the workers place on a life is on average $5 million, uh, $500 times 10,000. Um, so find my laser here. Um, if you look at the quantity of safety for a, this could be for a workplace, for a vehicle, it could be for any kind of thing that we're trying to, to accomplish safety for, product safety, anything else. If you look at the quantity of safety increasing as we move rightward along the horizontal axis, and then on the vertical axis we've got marginal cost and marginal benefit of additional safety. Okay, so the the marginal benefit curve is declining, indicating that our first few units of safety are pretty important to us. 
Um, and as we add safety, additional amounts of it are less and less and less valuable to us. The marginal cost curve is uh, positively sloped, meaning that if we continue to add safety, it becomes more and more expensive to do so. So it might be fairly cheap to put some heavy-duty bumpers on a car or add some rudimentary crumple zones or maybe add to the, to the um, stopping power of the brakes or something. But as you continue to pursue additional safety, that gets more and more difficult to do. You have to change the alloy in the metal to make it stronger. You have to uh, 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 add some complex technology, stability control or anti-lock brakes or something like that. And by the time you're way out here, you're, you're looking at some really costly technology to try to accomplish additional amounts of safety because all the low-hanging low fruit has already been plucked down here. The cheap ways to get safety have already been done. And now you're looking at, by the time you're up here, you're looking at very expensive methods of accomplishing additional safety. So at some point, as you're pursuing safety, you will reach this intersection where additional safety is going to present a higher cost to you than the benefit. And you, on your own, deciding about a product or something, if you had your opportunity to, to select the optimal level of safety for you, you would stop here at S star. That would be the ideal amount of safety for you. Any additional amount of safety, say S double star here, would be more costly to you than it's worth. Okay, so there is an ideal amount of safety and that is not absolute. All right, so perfect safety is not something we would actually prefer. It is, it, if we tried to accomplish that, we would be giving up so much that uh, we would be worse off. Um, we, Again, back to the armored personnel carrier here in my previous slide. All right, let's talk briefly about the FDA. I mentioned the FDA in my talk on medical care earlier in the week. Um, and uh, uh, this regulatory agency has its origins with Teddy Roosevelt. You can uh, take a look at this older article, but very good one by Bill Anderson uh, in the free market. Um, magazine, which is the forerunner of the current Mises Institute publication called The Austrian, and um, it's online. You can find this. Um, but basically, uh, Bill argues that uh, Roosevelt had a, had a kind of a grudge against uh, the meatpacking industry and began to pursue this regulation as a way to uh, supposedly improve consumer product safety. In fact, none of this was really uh, necessary, and a lot of the uh, regulation was based on a um, on fictional stories about what was really going on in the meatpacking industry. Uh, so it was not really helping consumers um, in in the sense that Roosevelt and his other progressives thought that it it might be. Uh, the FDA, as I pointed out in my talk earlier, creates these delays, these barriers to entry into the market, and as a result. Beneficial drugs are kept off the market for a longer period of time. Now, of course, they also keep off the market drugs that would have turned out to be bad for people, and that's, of course, what they advertise uh, as, as the reason for their existence. Uh, but the, uh, 
the numbers indicate that they're actually doing more harm than good. Their motivations are, in fact, to hold drugs off the market because they won't be criticized as much for doing that as they would be for, say, uh, allowing a thalidomide or some other damaging drug onto the market. George Hitchings, as I pointed out, pointed out earlier in the week, estimated that 80,000 Americans died as a result of a five-year delay in allowing an antibiotic called Septra onto the market, and uh, uh, 250,000 Americans died as a result of uh, uh, keeping, um, there was another drug on, that was uh, beta blockers uh, that, was, that were kept off the market for a period of time by the FDA. Um, some studies have, have indicated that relative to foreign countries which have similar regulation but not as restrictive, the FDA delays could result in somewhere between 5,000 or 10,000 casualties per decade. Uh, sorry, the benefits of the FDA regulation could result in, some, in the avoidance of some 5,000 or 10,000 um, uh, uh, casualties per decade, but the cost, the delays of FDA regulation could uh, result in anywhere from 21,000 to 120,000 lives per decade. So if you only focus on the lives saved or the injuries avoided or the side effects avoided from keeping certain drugs off the market and you don't look at the other part of this, which is the lives lost from delay, you're missing a large part of the picture. Um, the costs seem to be much larger than the benefits. If you go back to our diagram, the FDA appears to be somewhere over here in its uh, standards, and its, its delays have been quite damaging. Uh, Patrick Weinert in a 1998 uh, free market has a good article on the dangers of food safety, uh, the regulations on food safety that have actually resulted in more harm than good. A much more recent paper um, by Yasuda in the Independent Review, Food Safety Regulation in the United States, um, has some good points to make about the problems with this, the food safety standards in place in the United States. Um, you may know something about the controversy over raw milk or unpasteurized milk. And some people have said, well, you know, I need to have the right, I have the right to uh, buy milk that's not pasteurized. Or for whatever reason, they may believe that this is better uh, for your health. And so uh, the governments of some in some local jurisdictions and, and, and the federal uh, government have objected in some cases to this selling of raw milk. And so you have this kind of odd uh, black market in raw milk that's developed in some places. Um, and uh, Yasuda found that if you look at the states where raw milk is allowed, where it's not prohibited, they had 245 cases of food poisoning linked to this raw milk in states that had about 64% of the total population. There were, in contrast, about 248 cases of food poisoning uh, in the states that were banning raw milk, in states that had 36% of the population. So. Uh, was this really protecting people? I mean, it certainly doesn't seem so. If you just look at the, 
aggregate figures on um, illnesses caused by, uh, by these foods, um, it, it certainly doesn't appear that, that there's a problem with unpasteurized milk. Uh, Yasuda also pointed out that there's no correlation between the FDA food safety budget and disease statistics. You give the FDA more money to pursue food safety, you don't get any improvement in disease. Uh, there was a dramatic decline a few years ago in the FDA's border inspection rate, looking at foods coming into the United States. Foodborne disease statistics stayed about the same. So they stop, they stop regulating as much, and you don't really see people getting sicker. Uh, also, studies fail to show that restaurants with low inspection rates, or rather low inspection scores, cause any more food poisoning complaints. I, I don't know, but I'd be interested to see uh, whether Chipotle had uh, an A rating on their food safety. And uh, uh, I... I um, I suspect that they did. Um, what about food labeling? Well, this has come into the fore lately as people are looking at um, uh, genetically modified foods. Some people are concerned, probably some of you are concerned about uh, the impact of having a genetically modified organism that winds up in your Food. So uh, some people have put pressure on the government to require that genetically foods that use genetically modified organisms reveal this on their labeling. Uh, and to some people, this sounds like it would be a good idea. Well, of course, more information is better, right? Um, actually, not necessarily. And the, the Problem is that you you have a um, a scarce amount of attention from the consumer. They're not going to read a forty page document on what's in their food, uh, and uh, you have a scarce amount of space on the food packaging itself. So now we have food packaging. If you and I, I do this sometimes to look for things like sugars in my in my food choices, and so I pick up the labeling, and I, I have to study it, for, I have to hold it further away now that I'm getting older. I have to study this for some time to figure out what actually, out of all this fine print, what is it I'm looking for, and, and it's sort of crowded out by all the other information, much of which is not really pertinent or relevant for me. Uh, so uh, the FDA, has sort of monopolized a big chunk of this food packaging to itself and determined what should be revealed to the consumer. Now, if, if you're a consumer, this can be very confusing, and it, the confusion can lead to worse health outcomes than if firms had been allowed to report on their packaging what they think consumers want to know about the food. Uh, uh, one uh, controversial um, regulation involved a requirement that food producers report how many added sugars there were in the food product. Now, uh, I, I think it's relevant how much sugar is in a, a food, um, 
but added sugar versus naturally occurring sugar is chemically the same thing. So if you start telling people, if you mandate telling people this is how much added sugar there is, you could have something that's got a lot of naturally occurring sugar in it, no added sugar, and consumers might perceive this as being somehow more beneficial than a product that's got maybe few naturally occurring sugars but a small quantity of, of added sugars. Um, the total sugar content's already on the label, and if consumers want to know this, um, I, I would think that firms would be incentivized to provide that information as, as well. Um, what is certainly the case over the last 23 years is that nutrition information as presented is far too difficult for consumers to use to manage their overall health as it relates to diet. And uh, this is from Williams, Marlowe, and Archer um, from uh, 2016, last year. And they said, uh, what voluntary labels and product innovations would look like today in the absence of mandated government labels remains an interesting and important question for public health that the FDA has unfortunately ignored. We don't really know what labeling, labeling would look like if the FDA didn't mandate labeling, but we do know that more information can lead to less healthy food choices. Now, let me give you an example of how this might, how this might happen, other than the added sugar versus naturally occurring sugar thing. Uh, suppose you've got some piece of information that you want to add about your food product that is uh, possibly slightly relevant for some people's health. Uh, and the FDA says, okay, well, we're going to require that this be on the label. Well, then something that's, that, that adds to the list of information that you've now got on this label and something that's much more important, maybe calorie content or sugar content, is consequently pushed further and further, is sort of lost in the clutter of all the other information that's being provided. So there's, the, the consumer is less and less able to pick out what's the most important information about the, uh, about the food. Furthermore, uh, let's suppose uh, the FDA requires information to be provided that's really irrelevant, completely irrelevant to human health. Um, and I, I hesitate to mention examples here because people disagree on this kind of thing, but if, if they, I'll pick, I'll pick one at the risk of bothering some people. Let's suppose uh, we look at irradiated foods, okay? So irradiation can eliminate uh, bacteria in foods, reduce food poisoning cases. Um, it doesn't, from what I can tell, it doesn't seem to have any adverse effect uh, on human health. If the, if the government says, well, we, we're going to require labeling that reports this information, or maybe we'll just ban the process altogether, Let's just say they pick the first option. They say, you got to report this. Well, if it's irrelevant, then consumers are uh, going to look at this information and they'll assume from the mere fact that it's being reported that it has some impact on their health. All right, so that, that's also confusing. For further information on, oh, one other thing on this. Uh, labeling requirements can produce a barrier to entry for small-scale producers. 
This may help us understand why some of these labeling requirements exist in the first place. I had a, um, an acquaintance one time that was starting a very small business based on producing chocolate sauce. And she, um, she was just working out of her home, really, producing this chocolate sauce, and found that in order to get her chocolate sauce sold in stores, she had to uh, get the chocolate sauce tested in a lab in order to come up with all the information the FDA requires in the label. Well, this was expensive for her. It was expensive. It would not have been expensive for a very large firm, which might even have an in-house uh, laboratory to test all of this stuff. So for a very small business like hers, it was a barrier to entry. It was, it was a, a um, way of, for the larger firms to prevent competition from smaller firms that couldn't come up with the capital to do these kinds of tests. All right, for more on this, you can take a look at um, Dave Albin's article from about three years ago in uh, Mises Daily on, uh, he talks about GMOs and that kind of thing as well. This is a, um, the aftermath of an Amtrak train crash uh, which killed two people and injured 30. Uh, largely railroad employees. And the assessment of this accident was that the employees had been so inundated with safety requirements, on-the-job safety requirements, that they ignored something far more important, like the train coming down the track to where they, where they were working. Uh, so they, they got so focused on various minutiae of their workplace safety requirements that something really big escaped their attention. And that was the assessment of this accident. Uh, if, you, if you are inundating people with information, the sheer complexity of it and the limitations on human processing power mean that uh, you can actually reduce safety rather than improve it. All right, so there, back to these ideas about trade-offs. You can't just do one thing. Everything you do is going to back away from one risk and to some extent back into another risk. Uh, one study or um, series of studies really um, on government regulation indicates that if regulation costs money, which it always does, that reduces people's incomes as it reduces people's incomes, it reduces people's ability to do other things with their money, some of which might add to their safety and health. Uh, and some studies show a range of estimates where if you reduce people's incomes um, overall by anywhere from 10 to $50 million, you're going to lose one life somewhere. All right, so if a regulation is going to cost more than about $50 million to save a life, it's a wash. You're costing a life in doing this, maybe more than one. Uh, OSHA regulations, Occupational Safety and Health Administration, which regulates workplace safety, uh, the estimates are that OSHA regulations cost one and a half lives for every life they save. Now, you don't hear this from OSHA, 
but that's that's the uh, that's the case. And some regulations are far worse. Formaldehyde, which is a uh, preservative, um, the formaldehyde limitations imposed by the U.S. government for workplaces and and so forth, cost about 25 lives for every life they save. Uh, Methylmercury regulations do the same kind of thing. Um, years ago, several years ago, I gave some testimony before a subcommittee of Congress on uh, electric power generation and some of the environmental outcomes from, uh, from coal-fired power plants. The concern at the time was that coal-fired power plants are generating mercury emissions, mercury emissions, uh, lead to um, fish having higher quantities of mercury in their systems. If people eat the fish, particularly if pregnant women eat the fish, then this can do damage, um, um, brain damage to, to children and others. And so um, there was a EPA-funded study that analyzed freshwater fish and found, I'll cut to the chase here, that 56% of the fish had quantities of mercury above what has been considered a safe threshold. Um, but 97.5% of the fish had enough selenium, which offsets or counteracts the effects of the mercury, to counteract that whatever that adverse effect might have been. All but one of the fish in the sample they chose, 468 fish, had... Uh, that had an insufficient ratio of selenium to mercury were a type of fish that are commonly considered a kind of a trash fish and are not normally eaten. Now, so some people will say, well, we should just be cautious about this. Even if this is very unlikely to happen, people might, might not eat enough fish to cause any health problems, we should still be err on the side of caution. Well, that has costs. Uh, if you alarm people about mercury in fish for no good reason, uh, that could discourage people from eating fish in general, even though the vast majority of them are perfectly fine. Uh, and eating fish has positive benefits. It's a cheap source of protein. Uh, fish can provide good maternal nutrition, help cardiac function, brain function, in adults. Um, so if you back away from fish because of this alleged mercury problem in fish, you might back into another problem, which is if it, people aren't eating fish, they're eating something else, which might not be as good for them. And that's, that's the kind of problem we see. I'll close with a few comments about the uh, well-established lulling effect in some product regulation. This is um, this is called a lulling effect, but it's, it's referring to a misperception on the part of consumers about the efficacy of a mandatory safety device, which might lead people to reduce their other safety precautions. So a classic example of this from decades back, one of the first good studies of this kind of problem, looked at the mandatory safety caps on medication. You all grew up with these safety caps, the push down and turn kinds of things. And uh, that was not always required on medication. And uh, so 
you had a few cases where children got into medication, small children got into medication and, and consumed it and had poisoning uh, as a result, some poisoning deaths as a result of children getting into over-the-counter medication uh, with the very simple non-childproof safety caps. Um, so the government said, well, we're going to fix this with regulation. We're going to require people to use, require drug sellers to put these push down and turn caps on, on medication. What they found is after you take into account the, well, th this regulation occurred between the early 70s and the early 80s. So a study on this said, if you look at the poisoning rates for analgesic products, aspirin, Tylenol, et cetera, um, analgesic product poisoning rates were 1.1 per thousand people in 1971 and 1.5 per thousand in 1980 after the regulation had taken place. If you look at the, in, part of that increase would be because people are buying more Tylenol and buying more other analgesics than they were in 1971. But that only accounts for about half of that increase. The other half of the increase in the poisoning rates has to do with the fact that parents looked at this childproof safety cap and thought, oh, well, that makes it childproof. And so I don't have to lock it up. How inconvenient is that? I have to go find the key to the medicine cabinet um, or I have to go you know, get a stepladder to get the high shelf or whatever. So instead of doing that, I'll put it in a more convenient location under the sink or something because it's got a childproof safety cap. And the fact is that that makes the, the bottle more accessible, and even though it may be harder for a child to get into, some children can't figure it out. And so you end up with more poisoning deaths as a result. The, the study indicated there were 3,500 additional poisonings annually of children under the age of five resulting from the regulation inadvertently. Uh, same sort of thing for regulations changing the design of butane cigarette lighters, which you had to push a little switch before you pushed down on the, on the igniter. That also tended to result in more problems. Uh, there was a study, uh, actually a book review in the Quarterly Journal of Austrian Economics um, some years ago by Dale Steinrich looking at one of John Lott's books. And uh, John Lott pointed out that gun safety laws, gun safety regulations have had a similar effect. That uh, the gun lock rules that appeared years ago actually reduced safety in some cases. Um, he said part of this was not only because if your firearm is locked, then you can't get to it as easily if somebody's breaking into your house with the intent to do you harm, but also because the regulation puts a kind of a stigma. It signals that this product is unsafe and perhaps you should rethink, not, rethink buying it. And uh, so he says the stigma induced a few people to just avoid having a firearm at all and as a result, uh, that made the population more vulnerable to predation. Um, uh, firearms prevent violence as well as, as uh, sometimes being used to commit acts of aggression. Uh, so Lott found out that safe storage laws had no effect on accidental gun deaths or aggregate suicide rates. 
Um, the only consistent effect of the laws, he said, was to increase rapes, robberies, and burglaries in the 15 states that enacted those laws. He said that during the five years after passage of those laws, those 15 states faced a yearly average rise of 309 murders and over 25,000 aggravated assaults. I'm out of time. If you're interested, maybe later we can talk about uh, information disparities, um, the Uber phenomenon, how do, you, how do you know that your Uber car driver's safe? Uh, how would a market handle, um, handle uh, ensuring that consumers know the safety level of their product? Uh, briefly, I would just say that private certification can do a lot of that. Brand names can do a lot of that as well. But I'm out of time, so I'll, I'll stop here. Thank you very much.